Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel Podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. I guess interesting, I don't know if that's the right theological word, but it's interesting to me that um, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, which actually was last week, but we are recognizing it this week, that it comes right after we finished um, this teaching series on forgiveness, right? Wrestling with what does it mean to reconcile with those that were set against or set against us. And now today we're beginning a new series where we're going to be looking at the tension of the problem of evil in our world and the uncertainty of the world that we live in. And then you also take into consideration that yesterday was Remembrance Day, right? This day when we remember those who gave their lives in sacrifice, right? Who were in conflict and war and and all in effort to ensure that we might have freedom. And then we look at our news feeds, right? And they're clogged with stories of war and conflict and violence, whether that's coming out of Israel and Gaza, whether that's the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and Russia, whether that's Ethiopia or Sudan or Syria or Afghanistan, I can't even list them all. It's disheartening. It's, it's frustrating that as humans that we treat each other this way. But secondly, as we look at this, the, the magnitude of it, It's like, what can we even do? And I'm reminded that we've been given this gift of prayer, that it actually does something. That when we see turmoil around us, that we cry out to God, and we don't just cry out to God as an idea. We cry out to the God who is powerful and good and just, the God who is already present in the mess, and we ask him, to work powerfully in the midst of his people wherever they find themselves. So this morning, we're going to take a moment to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who face persecution because of their faith in Jesus. We're going to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who live their faith in a war zone. And we're going to remember that we pray to the God who came to us in Jesus, who tells us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, and that not only is he paying attention, but that he intends to set all of these things right. And so I'm gonna invite you, if you're able to, to stand while we pray, and we're gonna remember those around the world uh, whose gathering this morning looks probably vastly different than our own. Our God and Heavenly Father, this morning we take a moment to pause. We take a moment to sit quietly, even as there is so much turmoil that goes on around us. In the quiet, we give thanks. We give thanks for where we live, that we live in a place where we are free to gather, where we are free to worship, where we are free to pray to you. As many of us celebrated that freedom yesterday in remembrance, we are grateful for those who have and continue to make that possible. And we thank you most of all for this blessing of freedom. 
Our hearts turn towards brothers and sisters in other parts of the world whose lived experience is so different than ours, so much more difficult simply because they have a faith in Jesus. We pray for those in Nigeria who are under persecution, and as they face that and they experience it, we pray that they would also experience your presence. Would you provide for them in their need? For those in India, as they face injustices of many kind, that you would be a revealer of truth in their midst. God, would you vindicate them? For those in Nicaragua, we ask for strength, strength to remain faithful in spite of what is happening around them. Father, for the places and for other places and more, we pray for an emboldening, that your followers would be strengthened, that they'd be encouraged, that they would have a conviction that you are at work around them. And so give them eyes to see what you're doing and give them fruit in their labors to encourage their hearts. Father, we think also of those brothers and sisters whose lives are disrupted by war and conflict. And whether that is in Israel and Gaza, whether that's Ukraine and Russia, whether that's Ethiopia, Sudan, Syria, Father, you know all these places. We pray for families who are in grief. We pray for those who live day by day in fear and for those who are displaced because of the conflict. God, we pray that your shalom would rest in these places, that roads to peace would be formed, and that resolution and restoration could happen. And so as we pray, would you remind us that prayer is a gift, that you invite us to cry out to you, that you work in and through the prayers of your people, and that you are a God who is able And so we pray for that day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the water covers the seas. And so as we wait, through your spirit, give your people resolve, give them confidence, and work your good out in their faithfulness wherever they may be found. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Children and junior highs, you are able to go to your class now. Thank you for joining us this morning, and we look forward to worshiping with you uh, the whole service next Sunday. So, as the children are leaving... I want to ask you, how many middle kids do we have? And I mean like legit middle kids, like there were three of you and you were the one right in the middle, right? Like you are the only one who has a lived experience. Like you're my people, right? My wife, she just went out with the kids, but she also was a middle kid. And and nobody knows what we know, right? Like we have experienced it it all, right? So I'm a middle kid and, and I think about this sometimes, not particularly deeply, I don't imagine, but, but I think about these two roles that I've played in my life, that I've been both a little brother and I've been a big brother, and um, I wrestle with, like, which one did I do better, right, or which one did I do worse, and I think the jury's out that I maybe was worse at being a big brother for, for lots of different reasons, but, but here's the thing, it's interesting because when you have these two roles, and you might be a big sister and a little sister, but when you have these two roles, one of them you are literally born into, right? Like, it is your identity. You don't know anything different other than it. But the other one, at some distant point in your life, suddenly you're required to pick it up and to learn these different skills. And so I'm 
a middle child, and I have a sister who's three years older than me, and then I have a sister who is 12 years younger than me. And so that was a surprise. Uh, <laughs> it was a good surprise. Now, now, uh, I get along with my sisters. I love my sisters. I'm like 92, 93% sure they love me. And so we're in a good place that I can tell you this. But I joke with my little sister, and this is what I say to her, because she's 12 years younger, and I say, I perfected what it meant to be the youngest. And then you came along. And I had to completely reinvent myself. But being a little brother, man, like I was literally born to do that. <laughs> little brothers are pests. And my friends, that is my jam. That is my jam. And so growing up as siblings, my older sister and I, we were like most other siblings growing up. We got along great until we didn't. We were best of friends, but there were other times when we were in each other's faces and spaces, and we were arguing, and we were, we were bickering, and we were fighting, and, and we did this sibling dance, right, under the reign and the rule of the Supreme One, the one who is right and good and true and just, and we just called her mom. <laughs> and she would inject herself into our world, and she would say, behave. She would say, stop arguing and bickering all the time. She would remind us that we should be appreciative of what we had in each other. And she had one big rule, no hitting. Physical violence was not to be a way that we would solve our problems. We would use words. This was problematic for me as a smaller boy because my brain moved slower than my hands. And so I found myself breaking this rule more than anybody else and paying the just sort of fruits of those decisions, right? But boy, was I good at being a pest. I remember my sister had friends over and they were going to watch a movie or they were going to watch TV, something like that. And um, I didn't have friends, and so what am I supposed to do? And so I just leaned in being annoying. I was around, and I was pestering them. And my sister, well, her fatal flaw, and really there's no kind way to say this, she was a bit of a tattletale. <laughs> oh, Mom, Reg is bothering us. He's annoying us. And then my mom got involved, and she's like, Reginald, <laughs> what are you doing? Stop it. Go. Stop being annoying, leave them alone, go somewhere else. And so I heard her, and I decided that I would steal the television remote without their knowledge. And I snuck out into the backyard where it was getting dark, and I went to the back window. You guys still know what TV remotes are, right? Okay. And I stood by the back window where they couldn't see me, but I could see the TV, and I could turn the TV on and off, and I could change the channel, and I could adjust the volume. I know, it's a brilliant prank, right? <laughs> Spoiler alert, I got caught. <laughs> and my mom was on me again. Reginald, what is wrong with you? Stop this before something happens, before there is trouble. I'm nothing if not a slow learner. And so I kept pestering, and I kept bothering. And before we move to this next part, here's what I want you to understand, that if we were to rank my entire family based on their goodness, this isn't even a question. My older sister grades out right at the top. Like, she is a good person. She almost always does what is right. But the point is simply this. Good people have limits. And she dragged me down the back hall, 
And she gave me what I'll just describe as a sibling beatdown, a sound thrashing, a, a solid pummeling, and, and licking my wounds and wiping my tears. I was mostly embarrassed that my sister had beaten me up again. <laughs> but I did what any self-respecting person of honor would do. I told on her. <laughs> I walked up those stairs and I said, Mom, Darcy beat me up. And my mom looked at me quietly for a moment or two. And then she said, it looks to me like you got what you deserved. <laughs> Wh what? <laughs> Remember what rule number one is. No hitting. And I get it. I'm a pest. There should be consequences for that. Uh, withhold my allowance. Make me do an extra chore. Ground me if you must. But she, she hit me. I have come to you for justice. I have come to you for protection. I have come to you for you to work on my behalf, and now you're just going to stand aside and just let it have happened. This doesn't compute. This doesn't make sense to me. What is going on? And I don't know if you've ever gone to somebody for help or for justice and felt this tension, this, this, this sense of it being denied. It's very disorienting. You're like, what is going on? Something isn't right in my world. Well, this morning, that's the tension that we're going to feel on a much broader scale as we dip into this Old Testament minor prophet book called Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, it's not a big book. It's only three chapters in length. But even though it's a small book, it's full of big ideas. And they're big ideas that we have to wrestle with because they're ideas that we can't always resolve in these nice, neat ways. What we're going to find is that what's central to the book is that the idea that it is okay, in fact, that it is even encouraged that we be people who ask big questions of God, that we even be people who complain to God at times, hard as these ideas are to wrestle with. But the key is that we don't ask questions and then demand what the answer should be. That we don't demand, God, that you have to give me the answer that fits into my paradigm or into my presuppositions. And that will mean that at some point, and you understand this, if you have been in the faith for any length of time, there are times when you need to hold things in tension. And for some of us, we do that particularly well. For others of us, it's, it's difficult, right? It's hard. It's hard to hold things in tension. And so the hope is that by the time we get to chapter 3, where Habakkuk prays this grand psalm-like prayer, by the time we get there, in a couple of weeks, that we, like the prophet, will have found something sure and certain that we can anchor ourselves to, that we can tie ourselves to, even as we try to wrestle through the parts of our faith that are a little more murky. And so what we're going to do for this series is we're going to make uh, the text line available again, the questions at lrc.church, email address is open. Um, we might not do a special podcast at the end of this. I guess we'll see. But we're going to try to, to be on the journey with you if you have questions. And, and we're just going to have to all acknowledge that there's probably going to be a tension at some point that's unresolved. But there's lots of uh, different ways that you can unpack this. If you're in a life group, life groups are great places to ask the questions and wrestle with people. Safe place to be on the journey of faith. 
Uh, our library has lots of great resources. There's, uh, I would recommend one off my shelf, which is uh, N.T. Wright wrote a book called Evil and the Justice of God. That's a, a great read. I know in our library there's other good ones. There's Tim Keller's Walking with Pain and Suffering, uh, C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain. I think there's the Yancey book. Uh, Angelica and I chatted this week, and she's put a bunch of books out either in the window or on that rolling rack. If you don't see something that helps, she would love to help you find something, a resource uh, to help read. But it's just another way for us to wrestle through these big, these big ideas. But this morning, our text is going to be Habakkuk chapter 1. And so if you have a Bible, a physical Bible, you can flip to it. It might take you a bit because it's just a small little book near the end of the Old Testament. If you have a device, it'll be way easier. Um, but before we get into the text, like always... We want to set just a tiny bit of context and understand what we're kind of unpacking this morning. And the truth is, is that we don't know very much about Habakkuk. We think that his name has a meaning of, of wrestling or embracing, which makes sense given what, what his story or what his book conveys. But his name actually only appears twice in this book and nowhere else in the entire scripture. That's it. So we don't really know where he came from. We don't know if he had another occupation, like how Amos had another occupation. We think possibly he worked at the temple because he talks about the temple. And we don't know what the basis of his call to be a prophet was. We have a pretty good idea of when he was based on the way that he talks about Babylon, the way that he talks about the temple. Most scholars would say that this book is dated around 600 B.C. And so that was just before the Babylonian Empire uh, took Judah off to exile, but it was after the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians. But when we think about Old Testament prophets, and when we think about the idea of prophecy, I think often our default is to think about their job being to tell the future, right? And to some degree, that's right. You see that in the scriptures, that they do, to some degree, tell the future. But the primary role of the prophet was simply to call God's people back to right covenantal relationship with him. Israel, when it was a unified nation, and then Israel to the north and Judah to the south, they were God's special people. They'd entered into covenant with him, bound to him. He was going to be their God, and they were to be his people. And with that came an expectation that they would live out what it meant to be the people of God that they would abide by his laws, that they would live according to his ways. And God said, when you do that, I will bless you and I will keep you. But when you rebel or you reject my ways, it would mean curse. And this is the part where I think we have to stop for a second. Right? This is maybe where we feel our first little bit of tension. Like, what does it mean that the people of God, when they reject him, face curse? Well, I want us to begin here. If we consider that God is the source of life, if God is the one in whom we would say is light and, and peace and truth, then for anyone to move away from him in rebellion, to turn away and say, I don't want that, by its very nature, we are moving in the opposite direction to what God is. We're moving towards chaos. We are moving towards darkness. We are moving ultimately towards death. And so the call of the prophets was always to come back, to come back to remain in Yahweh, 
to receive the blessing in the, of his presence and of his life and to also heed the warning that if you would continue to reject his ways, if you would continue to say, I know better, the world knows better, I'm going to go in that direction, that you're moving away from peace to chaos, that you're moving from light to darkness, and that you're moving towards curse. But this does not preclude the fact that at times God disciplines his people. And if you're a parent this morning, you kind of understand that, right? You understand the idea of discipline. And, and, and we don't do it perfectly all the time, right? Sometimes we're angry and, and we don't do it right. But at its core, when we discipline these little people that we are stewarding, what we are trying to do is we're trying to help them become whole little people. We're trying to help them understand how to be and how to act in the world. We are trying to shape their character. We're helping them discover what's actually best for them. All illustrations at some point break down, but I want you to imagine that I'm sitting at the island in my kitchen with my two kids, and we're eating lunch. And they get up, and they start chasing each other around the kitchen. I can assure you that I will tell them, stop what you're doing. Come back to your stool and eat your lunch. Stop before something bad happens. I can assure you, because they are my children, they will not listen to me. <laughs> they will continue to run around and run around until one of them wearing socks takes a sharp turn and loses their footing and skids into a wall, into a sibling, into a potted plant which scatters dirt everywhere and breaks. They did not heed the warning. And now maybe the result is they have a bruised leg or an angry sibling, or maybe there's some sort of discipline that happens because they've broken a potted plant and they're in a timeout or something else. Maybe it's both things or all three things happening simultaneously. Maybe it's one or the other. The message of the prophets was a message of warning. Stop. Stop how you're living because it leads nowhere good. Come back to God or something bad will happen. Life apart from him leads to curse. And whether that's opening yourself up to the pain and the consequences of your decisions or whether it's some kind of discipline that God uses, the result of it is the same. Whatever you face, the point of it is God is coaxing you to come back. Come back and in me find grace and life, peace and blessing. If you read through the Old Testament, this is the dance that we see happening between the people of God and Yahweh. They reject his ways. They anticipate if we just go to temple, if we just do the festivals, if we just do the sacrifices, God will be okay with us. We're his people. We're checking the boxes. He'll bless us. We'll be fine. But the rest of the time we're told they're exploiting the poor. They're taking advantage of the weak. They're dabbling in idolatrous practices. They're living lives of promiscuity. They don't look anything like how the people of God are supposed to look. And so the prophets, they come on the scene and they say, they warn, they say, come back. God's nature is long-suffering. God's nature is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. Come back and receive life. But continuously, the people scoff. And the message becomes the consequences of your actions are now upon you. And God's discipline is coming. 
This is the backdrop of Habakkuk, who was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. But what makes this particular book unique and kind of peculiar is that at no point does Habakkuk ever seem to address the people of Judah with his message. Maybe that came after, and we just don't have a recording of it. But the book is really a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet is appealing to God. He's complaining to God, and God responds to them. See, Habakkuk, he's furious with his people. He's furious at the people that, that he lives alongside. He's annoyed and furious at their faithlessness. But he's also annoyed with God. He's like, God, are you seeing what's going on here? It seems like God is allowing this to carry on and on and is doing nothing about it. And that's where Habakkuk starts in verse 1, it says this, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk is looking over the landscape of his people and he's mortified. They don't look anything like the kinds of people they ought to be. They are living contrary to what it means to be the people of God in almost every way. And maybe he's baffled. Maybe he's just like, I cannot understand how stiff-necked and obstinate you people are. Because it, their brothers and sisters in the northern tribe of Israel had done the same thing, had lived lives of injustice, had dabbled in idolatry, and God had sent prophet after prophet saying, turn back, turn back, and they ignored, and they ignored. And then the Assyrians showed up and brought them to ruin. But somehow... Judah convinces herself that she's going to be okay. We have a son of David on the throne. We're good. We're fine. God will not punish us. In fact, he'll in some way continue to protect and prosper us. It's the other nations that need to be worried. And by all accounts, that seems to be what's happening. From Habakkuk's point of view, it looks like God is staying uninvolved, doing nothing about it, even though his people are making a mockery. Of his name. How long, O oh Lord, do I need to call out? How long? And you still don't answer. All I see is violence. All I see is injustice. The wicked taking advantage. It's like he's got the mic. Check, check. Is this thing on? Bueller, Bueller. Where are you? It's such an interesting twist. Because if you read through the prophets, so often they're appealing on behalf of the people. Lord, I get it. We're we are just not really good people. But have mercy on us. Like, let's, like, like, like be gracious to us. Give us another chance. Or, or they're going to the people and begging them to repent and avoid what's on the horizon. But not Habakkuk. Habakkuk is sick and tired of being sick and tired of the people that he lives among. They're giving Judah a bad name. They're giving Yahweh a bad name. Have you ever experienced this? Do you ever feel this as you look at the world around you? We don't really want to admit it, right? We want to be good neighbors and, and good Canadians that don't complain about anything. But do you look around the world and see places where it seems like evil is prospering? 
The righteous are being cast aside, trampled on, taken advantage of. And for some of us, maybe it's really close to home, like in the company that you work at. Maybe there's somebody who, uh, you know, keeps climbing the corporate ladder, and you know that they cut corners, and you know that they're telling lies, and you know that they're shady in their dealings. Meanwhile, you or somebody else, you're working hard, you're putting in the time, and you keep getting passed over. Maybe there's the kid who shows up to tryouts, right? Comes to practice early, works really hard, puts in the work, keeps getting cut from the team in lieu of the one who's a bad teammate, who shows up late, just has a good jump shot and knows the right people. Maybe it's big things. Maybe it's the stories that stare at you from your browser. Stories coming out of the Middle East. Stories coming out of Eastern Europe. Stories coming from the places that we prayed about today in International Day of Prayer. The world sometimes feels like it's on fire. Evil seems to be running rampant. And God, where are you? What about when it's happening within the people of God? Ooh, that's a different thing altogether, isn't it? That's what had Habakkuk so worked up. And do you ever sometimes look at the state of Western Christianity? Kind of shake your head, not in a good way. It doesn't even actually matter which side you lean to. If you say you lean left or right or progressive or conservative, sometimes I feel like we can look across the whole spectrum and it's like this caricature of the way it's supposed to be. We look to one side and we can complain they're compromising on their ethics. They're going soft on truth. They're being formed by the culture. They just say, well, if we just act like we love people, we don't have to really care about what else we do. Don't worry about holiness. On the other side, we can complain there's a whole bunch of people who are weaponizing the faith, that they're using the gospel to exclude people and dehumanize people. People all over the place are trying to tie Jesus to a particular political party. Leaders use their power and influence to get their own way, to build their own brand, no matter what the fallout is. There's money mismanagement, infidelity, abuse, and all this stuff comes from inside the people who claim to follow Jesus. Have you ever asked God, how much longer are you going to tolerate this? Like, God, I don't know if you know how hard it is for me to tell my neighbor I'm a Christ follower because of the mess that other people are making. You feel that sometimes? Habakkuk has had enough. And he's not afraid to begin asking the big questions. God, where are you? And how much longer are you going to drag your feet? It's time. And you know what the beautiful thing is? God's okay with it. Not one time does he chastise the prophet for filing a grievance and asking the questions. But the answer, well, that's something different. The answer that comes back is not what Habakkuk is expecting, and it actually causes him to be just a little bit more unsettled. Pick it up in verse 5. This is what God says. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. They promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. 
They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and they scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose strength is their God. God says, I hear your question, and I have an answer, but you're not going to like it. The Babylonians, which have been building up steam, this war-hungry empire that plows through nations and crushes them, this nation that steals from those who are weaker than them, this people who think only of themselves and consider themselves to be like gods, I'm raising them up, and I'm going to use them to put Judah in her place. Woof. If on your bingo card you guessed Habakkuk is not on board with this, you're right. Verse 12, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Like, you've made promises to us. We know we're going to survive this. But, O Lord, you've appointed them to execute justice. O Rock, you've ordained them to punish but your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls them all up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. And then he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury. He enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch, and I will station myself on the ramparts, and I will look to see what God will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Look, Lord, nobody more than me agrees that Judah has something coming. There needs to be a reckoning for faithless behavior. You were just, you were good. You were upfront and clear about covenant, about blessing, and about curse. And yet they continue to reject, they continue to rebel. Something needs to be done. But this, maybe let's not run with the first idea that goes up on the board. Maybe let's think a little bit more strategically. Let's see if there's other options. Is this the answer to the problem, really? That we would allow somebody more vile, more rebellious, more violent, trample your people? Like, that's not good PR. I mean, I know Judah's bad, but Babylon is way worse. They don't even recognize you. They worship themselves and their own power. They're just out for their own name, and they're hell-bent on destruction. This kind of feels like something you should oppose, not allow. Do you feel the tension this morning? Habakkuk is like at the top of the stairs saying, Mom, I get it. I did the wrong thing. But this is worse. And you're just going to stand there and let it happen. It doesn't compute. And I don't know what Habakkuk had been hoping for when he started this whole conversation. Like, I don't know if he's hoping for famine or God would just send fire and wipe out a bunch of people in Judah and that would just sort of make things okay. I don't know. But underneath the surface, it does seem to be a nagging sense with him that God, at the very least, should be dealing with things in a particular order, right? Like, let's look at the landscape. Let's see what is the worst 
And let's start there. Bring justice on those who are the most evil, maybe rather than using them as a tool of justice on those who are more righteous than them. God, this plan of yours doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to need an explanation. And so Habakkuk just hunkers down. He says, I'll wait. I'll station myself here, and I will wait to see what he says. And this is the part where on the screen, the to be continued sign comes up, that little message. And guess what? This will be to be continued. We actually are going to leave ourselves in tension. If you don't like that, like you're like, I don't like waiting. I binge watch shows on Netflix all the time. I mean, you have a Bible. You can go ahead and read the next two chapters. (laughs) It's probably not going to help you guys. It's not going to help you. You're going to feel uncomfortable. But I want us to sit here and wait to go to chapter two. I want us to be okay with the discomfort for a moment because Habakkuk had to wait. We don't know how long he had to wait. But it's helpful for us to hear this, to see what it means and what it might actually mean for us as we move forward. And so here's the first thing I want to pull from this for us. The first thing is that Habakkuk's inviting us to be people who are paying critical attention to the world around us. Like that's a great starting point. Do you pay any attention to the world around you? Are we just people who go with the flow, being carried along in the river of culture? Or do we discern where things seem to be drifting away from the heart of God? Do we pay attention to this in our own lives? Do we pay attention to this in our communities and in our workplaces? Do we pay attention to this as we look at the world around us? Next week, the text is going to unpack five different ways that people tend to build their lives that actually leads to ruin. We're going to get there. But for this week, are we paying attention? Do we even notice what God notices? The second thing we see in the text is God is totally okay that when we find ourselves in the uncertainty, when we find ourselves in the mess, God says, ask your questions. Ask the hard questions. Feel free to complain about it. He's okay with that. Not one time is Habakkuk chastised. God is big enough for your questions. But our questions need to shift away from God, are you here in the mess, to be slightly shifted towards God, where are you in the pain and the darkness and the injustice? See, all of Habakkuk wants to call us to be people who have the faith to believe that God is present, that he is in the midst of it. He's not asleep at the wheel. He's not distracted by something else and being like, what's happening over there? Oh, no. He's working things out according to his will and his timing, and it's okay to be uncomfortable with that. It's okay. The manner by which he does it will not always make perfect sense. In Isaiah 55, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's not a matter that we would demand of God that he give us answers that we want that fit our presuppositions. It's whether we have a conviction that God can be trusted. That's the critical piece. Can I trust God? Is he good? Is he right? And is he just, especially in the places where I feel tension? One of the great dangers for all of us as we read a text like this is that we just want to drag it out of the pages of the Bible 
and just drop it into our world and just try to make sense of it. Just, there it is. One way we might do this is we look at the events of our news feed and we say, God must be punishing Ukraine. God must be punishing Israel or Sudan or Afghanistan or Syria or just take the list and go down. And maybe we could all point to an evangelist or a personality who says some hurricane or some earthquake or some war or some global pandemic is God judging some subsection of people because of their sins. We've probably all heard it. We should tread carefully. Consider that in the Old Testament, the people of God were marked as being a people of a particular nation who were given a specific way to live as his people. Consider time and again, they do fall short. They do rebel against him, and they departed from his will. But God's ultimate response to that, we point to discipline. We point to the exile. God's ultimate response to it was Jesus. Don't miss that. The anointed one, the one who came and fulfilled the law and the covenant, not just for Judah, but for us Gentiles as well. The one who came for all people. That now the people of God, they're not contained to a particular border, but they are those who belong to the resurrected Christ and they are scattered across the globe as salt and light. Consider that Jesus is God's ultimate response to the pain, to the darkness, to the chaos, to the sin, to the curse. And in a few minutes, we're going to come to the table and we're going to share communion as we always do. And we're going to retell one another the great story of Jesus that he came and he bore upon himself all of the sin and all of the darkness of the world and that he drank death down and then he overcame it in his resurrection. And we need to understand that the cross is a story of mercy and of love and of justice. That Jesus takes our place that we might be free. Humans continue to make bad choices, leading them away from all that God is. People continue to walk in the direction of chaos and death and darkness. God, no doubt, disciplines his people at times as a means of getting their attention, of, of calling them back. Elements of justice get carried out in our world, and at times they are meted out by, by, by broken tools, maybe by those who are worse than the ones that they seem to be enacting justice on. But even in those broken moments, we are those who are awaiting a great day, a day when God will set all of these things, all of them, he will set them right. And it's not always clear to us what is happening around us, if it's just the nature of being in a broken world, or whether we've opened ourselves up because of the choices that we've made, or whether it is some measure of discipline. But here, in the places that we can't discern that, the hope, the message that they announce is all the same. Turn back to Jesus. Draw back to the resurrected Christ with your whole self and there find grace and mercy because that is the place where life is. That is the place where there is hope and we know, we have the conviction that God is at work putting things back together even when we cannot see it. 
And so this morning, I don't know where you feel the tension most. Maybe you feel the tension everywhere. We live in a broken world, and maybe you see it in your own life. Maybe you see it in your community. Maybe you see it in global events. I want to say to you, don't be afraid to bring those to God. Don't be afraid to ask him questions. Don't be afraid to file your grievance. He's there for that. Maybe it would be helpful for you to actually write a letter to God. Have you ever tried that? Write a letter to God. Write out all the places that you see that distress you and ask him, God, where are you in this? What are you doing? Ask him to show how the turmoil can help you trust him more. Ask him to reveal through his spirit how he might want to use you to be an agent of hope and of peace and of righteousness. And just remember that when we pray, when we write a letter, we are reaching out to the God who came to us in Jesus, the one who joins us in the turmoil, and the one who promises to be with us even as we wait for things to be set right. Where he's at work in the mess of our world, it is not always clear to us. But because of Jesus, and because of what Jesus has done, what is clear is that he is at work. He promises he is, and that his heart is to bring reconciliation and shalom to all of it. And so as the band is going to lead us with another song before communion, take a moment to reflect, where in my life do I need to draw closer back to Jesus? Where do I need to give myself to him more and more? And where do I need to remember the power of Christ at work in my life and in my community and in the world around us. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess we don't like tension. We would like to know what's happening and when it's happening and how it's all going to come together, and yet you invite us simply to trust you. We thank you that you sent Jesus and that that is enough, that in Jesus we are promised that all things will be made right that death and sin and darkness and curse, all of it has been overcome. And so I pray today, wherever the tension is for us, wherever we feel the turmoil, that we would cling to Jesus. Show us enough to know that you are good. Show us enough to see where you're working. Remind us that you are just. And remind us that you are powerful and that you are not finished. So we hold on to you, we have faith in you, and we look to you to continue to work in the world around us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.